One of the things I know is that I've regularly spoken about the importance of thanksgiving or the importance of gratitude simply because I know and you know that thanksgiving is the door code into the presence of God. So we enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. And so if we're going to be a people who know the presence and experience the presence of God, the first element that must be found in our lives must be thanksgiving. We have to be people of gratitude. And so today I'm going to take you to a story that's found in Luke chapter 7. We're going to walk through the text together uh, and hopefully you'll see the importance of gratitude and thanksgiving, especially from this wonderful story of it overflowing from a woman who had to push through stereotypes to get to the feet of Jesus and to express her gratitude to him. And so I'm going to read Luke 7, verse 36 onwards. It's always really helpful if you have it in front of you as well, because we'll walk through almost verse by verse. It says in verse 36, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and the kind of woman that she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. I'm sure God will bless the reading of his word to us, amen? I wonder whether you've ever found yourself in a socially awkward situation. Uh, You know one of those moments where you walk into a room and you know that you don't fit or you're in a room and somebody walks in and it's obvious that they don't fit. Like, Have you ever had a socially awkward situation? As I look back over my life, I've had a multitude of those and quite often they've uh, focused around a moment where I've been stood watching one of my children play a sports event. 
Uh, most of my kids have played football and cricket and, and a variety of other sports, and I've often found that I stand on the sidelines, often with a, a group of other dads or a group of other guys, and then they start to have conversation, and sometimes their language can be kind of a little bit colorful, and, and sometimes their jokes can be a little bit inappropriate. Uh, and, and I know exactly what's going to happen next, because this is what guys always tend to do. At some point, they ask, what do you do for a living? And so uh, one of them turns to me and says, so, so like, what, what's, your, what's your job? And I then try my best to explain uh, that I'm like a pastor, I'm a vicar, I'm a minister. And the exact same thing happens every time I do that. They start to process in their minds the conversation that they've had with me the 10 minutes prior. Uh, Then they start to apologize for swearing. Uh, Then they start to apologize for some of their inappropriate jokes. And then they tell me the last time that they went to church, which was usually their christening. Uh, And then they uh, describe to me a random family member who goes to church as if that will get them off the hook. And then they tell me uh, the last time that they watched songs of praise. And it's, and it's like, you know, it's, like, it's really, really awkward. It's awkward for them. It's awkward for me. Anybody else had that kind of thing go on? Are those awkward situations? Well, our text that we've read together describes one of those socially awkward occasions. It's Simon's house. Simon is a Pharisee. That means that he's part of this religious group of leaders who pride themselves on their purity, who pride themselves on their religious behavior. And there's obviously this group of high flyers who've come together. They've come to discuss religion. They've come to discuss faith. And wonderfully, Jesus has been invited into the room. And as they are reclining around this central table with their feet and their legs pointing out like the spokes of a bicycle wheel, uh, the people around the room, the doors are open, the windows are open, they're looking in to hear this intellectual conversation that's going on in the centre of the room. And then the socially awkward moment comes because a sinful woman enters the room. It's likely that she's a prostitute. We don't have her name. She's just in the scriptures as the sinful woman. Imagine for a moment that no one knows your name, but you are known for your worst characteristic. I I wonder what you would be known as. In fact, maybe you turn to the person next to you and tell them what you think they might be. No, no, don't do that. (laughs) But I do wonder... Like, what would you be known as if you were simply known by your worst characteristic? The greedy man, the angry man, the jealous man, the lying woman, the the miserable woman, the bitter woman. I don't know. All we know in this text is that this woman was known for her worst characteristic. She's known for her sin. And while, of course, that may make us smile or laugh uh, at, at the idea that the idea that we would be known for our worst characteristic, of course, for some of us in the room, that's deadly serious. It's possible that you've actually been given a name and that name has stuck to you. It's almost like that name has attached itself to you like it's a label. Somebody who's picked up on your worst characteristic and they've almost turned it around and made it a name for you. Someone has said to you that you're unlovable. 
It's attached itself to you. Someone has said to you that you will never make anything with your life. And it's attached itself to you. Somebody's told you that you are a failure. And that title has attached itself to you. It's like a label that has stuck on you. And then whether intentionally or unintentionally, it's almost like you've come into agreement with that thing that has been said over you. You've come up to almost partner with a lie. You've ended up living as if it's the truth about you. And the reality is, for most of us, the names that attach themselves to us are usually the exact opposite of how God sees us. Because in this text, the lady is known as the sinful woman, but in the eyes of Jesus, she's loved. Like in the eyes of Jesus, she's a child, a precious child of her heavenly father. It was a lie to believe that she would always be known for her sin. And it was a truth to believe that for centuries she would be known as the woman who loved Jesus, known as the woman who demonstrated great grace and devotion and gratitude to Jesus. And so right at the start of my talk today, I need to remind you of some of the truths about you Because when you start to grasp the truths about you, they fight against the lies that have attached themselves to you. Ephesians 1 says that you are chosen, adopted, forgiven, and you are a recipient of God's grace. Uh, Psalm 139, it says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Romans 8 says there is actually nothing that could ever separate you from God's love. 1 John chapter 3 says that your heavenly father has lavished his grace upon you and you are called his child. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, we're told there that you actually don't have a spirit of fear, but of power, of love and a sound mind. Did you know today that John 15 actually says that you are Jesus's friend? Some of you probably need to hear today that Ephesians chapter 2 says that you are God's workmanship and you've been created in Christ Jesus to do a whole load of good works. Did you know today that 1 John 5 says that you are born of God and the enemy actually cannot touch you? I don't know whether you know this, but Genesis chapter 1, it does say that you have been made in the very image of Almighty. God, which I would suggest is something to celebrate today. Because they, yeah, they are truths. Those are truths about you. And if there's a label that has attached itself to you that is a lie, you grab hold of the truth, and in grabbing hold of the truth, you reject the lie. And so this woman in our text, who wasn't even welcome in her hometown... She enters Simon's house, and in an act of daring faith, she moves from the edge of the room to the center of the room, and in an expression of unrestrained gratitude, she starts to wet Jesus' feet with her tears. She cleans them with her hair. She takes out a bottle of perfume that would have probably been her, her most valuable possession, and she pours it all on the feet of Jesus. The smell of the of the perfume, it fills the air. It's a smell of humility. It's the smell of gratitude. Somehow, she knew 
that in that room, Jesus wouldn't demean her, that Jesus wouldn't push her away. There were a group of other guys around her, around Jesus at that moment, who would have pushed her away. They wouldn't have wanted to be contaminated by her. They were angry, hate-filled men. But Jesus is different. For the whole of her life, this woman has been humiliated. For the whole of her life, she's been rejected. She's been abused. But now, she finds herself in the presence of Jesus, and she feels free. She feels forgiven. She feels loved. And she's so overwhelmed that she explodes in this wild expression of gratitude and love towards Jesus. Have you ever witnessed one of those moments where a man proposes marriage to a like his like a woman, his girlfriend, in a public place, and loads of people are watching? It's kind of awkward, but they kind of do it as a uh, like a, a, a like a wild expression of love. I've run the, the London Marathon a few times around this, this year. And one year that I was just crossing the line to finish the marathon, I did it with a couple who crossed the line, a young couple who crossed the line holding hands together. And as they crossed the line, it became obvious that something was going to happen because the young man fell to his knees and he pulled out of his back pocket what became obvious that it was a box with a ring on it. And as it was obvious that something was happening, the TV cameras started to focus on this young couple and people started to gather around them. And he's on his knees in front of his girlfriend and he's saying to her something like this, I know I'm smelly and I know I'm sweaty and I know we're both exhausted and I know everybody is around us watching but I don't care because I want everybody to know I I love you will you marry me yeah wow and she says yes thankfully because that would have been really really awkward and then they have this like sweaty embrace and it was disgusting it was disgusting But you know something, when you're overwhelmed by love and gratitude, you sometimes do some crazy things, don't you? Somehow, this woman in Luke 7, she knows how much she's loved by Jesus. So she explodes in this act of outrageous gratitude. At that moment, Simon the Pharisee has a thought. If Jesus were really a prophet, he would know who's touching him kind of woman that she is. I understand in the original Greek language, the phraseology here suggests that Simon is thinking, this woman is dirt. This woman is soil. Like Jesus should surely know that this woman is worth nothing. And then Jesus does that scary thing that Jesus does because Jesus answers Simon's thoughts even before he speaks them with his words. You ever met a prophetic person who does that? You know, like you can tell that their eyes are looking deep into your soul and you confess every sin that you've ever done, every sin that you might ever do, and every sin like that you might have... Ac- you, you know, you, you've met those people. So Jesus looks at this man, and he knows what he's thinking. And so he tells him a story. 
There are two guys who have a MasterCard. Both of them have built up debts. It's just that one of them is slightly more out of control than the other. One owes 500 pounds, and the other owes 5,000 pounds. And then one day, the boss of MasterCard wakes up, has a funny turn, and decides to cancel all debts. So happy day. And so the guy who owes 500 pounds, well, his debt is canceled. And the guy who owes 5,000 pounds, his debt is canceled. And the question, of course, is then, who loves MasterCard more? Simon the Pharisee answers, and he says, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. Jesus says, well, yeah, you judged correctly. And then if you look carefully at the text, it says that he looks at the woman and then says to Simon, Simon, you know, when I came to your house, you didn't do me the common courtesy of washing my feet, and you didn't give me a kiss to greet me, and you didn't put oil on my head out of respect. But this woman has done all three, and it's because she has been forgiven so much. She loves so much because she's been forgiven so much. And then we arrive at verse 47 in the text. It's one of those verses that's really easy to speak. It's maybe less easy to understand. Therefore, it says, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. So is Jesus actually saying, you need to sin more in order to love God more? I mean, is Jesus really saying to Simon, Simon, your problem is you don't sin enough. And what you need to do, Simon, is you need to sin a whole load more. In fact, what I'd suggest to you is that you just get the Ten Commandments and then systematically disobey every single one. And then when you've led this most dark and depraved life, come back to me because then you'll love me more. I mean, is Jesus really saying that? In order to get close to him, we have to sin more. Well, you'll be pleased to know that there is another way of reading that text. I think Jesus is ultimately saying to Simon, Simon, you're not repentant enough. Simon, it's not actually about how much you sin. It's actually about whether you will own your sin. You see, Simon thought he was good enough for God, whereas the sinful woman didn't think that she was good enough for anyone. Simon didn't think his sins needed to be forgiven. And probably he thought that repentance would make him less of a person. And so you get a stark contrast in the text. Simon is the man who represents God to the people. Simon is the one who's supposed to be close to God. Simon is the one who's convinced that it's Jesus' privilege to be in his house. Simon is the one who thinks he's doing God a favor. And Simon is the one who thinks he's got it all right. But he's actually got it all wrong. Whereas the sinful woman has spent her whole life getting it all wrong, and now she gets it all right. And without holding back anything, she lavishly demonstrates her gratitude to Jesus. It's like the Simon the Pharisee says, God, you owe me. Whereas the sinful woman says, God, I owe you everything. It's kind of ironic, isn't it, that Simon has spent the whole of his life obeying the whole of the law, and yet he misses the most important one, whereas the sinful woman has broken every single law, and yet she masters the most important one, to love the Lord your God 
with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. You know, it is quite possible for some of us in the room to become a little bit like Simon the Pharisee. You know, for some of us, we've been Christians a little while. For some of us, we probably feel like we've cleaned up our lives. For some of us, maybe we feel like we don't have too many vices. Maybe we just consider ourselves to be little sinners. For some of us, maybe we've turned amazing grace into interesting grace. Maybe we've forgotten that we've actually been forgiven. Maybe we've forgotten that actually even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. For some of us, we probably think we're doing okay. And maybe if I could uh, do my job today, and my job would be this, to re-stir some gratitude in us. Because actually gratitude is the birthplace of love. So maybe I need to remind some of you today that you were once dead in your sins, you know, but now you've been made alive in Christ. Some of you need to be reminded today that once you were lost, but now you've been found. Some of you need to be reminded that you were controlled by your past, but now you actually have a future. Some of you need to be reminded today that once you were dirty, but now you've been made clean. Some of you just need to remember today that you've been chosen and loved and adopted and forgiven by God. Some of you need to hear the voice of Jesus spoken to you all over again. His voice says to you, I choose you. Like, I forgive you. I give you a future. I love you. Do you know what? The most appropriate response to those statements is to live a life of gratitude that overflows with love. And I love what happens at the end of the text. Uh, If you look at it, In verse 49, around that verse, there's a conversation that begins. Everybody in the room and then everybody in the community starts to have a conversation about what happened in that moment. I'm sure firstly they spoke about the woman, but then ultimately if you look at verse 49, they have a conversation about Jesus. This overflow of gratitude starts everybody in the community talking about Jesus, the one who even forgives sins. When I read that, it makes me wonder, what would actually happen in our lives if we all lived out of deep gratitude and thankfulness? I just wonder what difference it would make. I wonder how many more conversations about Jesus we would have if we lived with that sense of gratitude. Because you know as well as I do, people who moan and people who are miserable and people who are critical, they're just to a penny. There's loads of people out there like that. But people who are grateful, they're a rare commodity. Because of that, they stand out. And because of their gratitude, conversations start and they point people towards Jesus. I just wonder how much more effective we would be in our mission if we lived with that sense of gratitude. And I also wonder what would happen in our church, like in my church, your church here, if every time we gathered together for corporate worship and we sing and we give and we serve and we take communion and all of those things... What if we didn't just do it out of duty? What if we didn't do it out of religious routine? But what happens if every time we turn up in a place like this, we just do it out of gratitude? Something is overflowing from our hearts. 
And I also wonder, like, what would happen in our personal relationships and with our physical health and even our career path if we lived with this overflow of gratitude? Because you know there's loads of stuff you can Google out there that actually tells you that grateful, thankful people tend to be healthier and happier and they get on better at work and they get on better in relationships, loads better than people who moan, people who are bitter and people who are glass half empty human beings. I just wonder what would happen physically and relationally and in our careers if we just lived a life of gratitude and thankfulness. I wonder what would happen If we took the words of Psalm 103 seriously, where it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. What if we actually created a list of the things that God has done and recalled them back to him? I guess we all have different spiritual disciplines, spiritual rhythms that keep us alive spiritually. One of the things that I've done for the last 10 years, the first thing that I do in the day after I put on the kettle for my coffee is I, for two or three minutes, just list the things that God has given to me or done for me or or provided for me. I list my, my gratitude for my family. I list the, the gratitude for my job. I list the list gratitude for uh, uh, like my physical health and light and he, he, all, all of those kind of things. And I do that out loud because I believe it's a really helpful uh, practice to get involved in. And as I've done that for the last 10 years, can I tell you five things that have happened and five things that I think are really important Uh, the reasons why we should live a life of gratitude. And when the pastor says five things and he's heading towards the end of the sermon, you're wondering how long is he going to go on for? Well, maybe the band could join me as I go for these five things, which is a sign to you that I'm coming to an end. Number one is this. I've discovered by a daily practice of gratitude that gratitude disarms the enemy. You have an enemy who wants you to think that your heavenly father is stingy, that he's holding something back from you. But when you give thanks, it agrees with heaven and you acknowledge the truth that your heavenly father is incredibly generous and everything that you have been given is a gift from him. Number two, I've learned that gratitude breaks a sense of entitlement off my life. Every now and again, I say to myself, I deserve this. Like, I've worked really, really hard, therefore, I deserve this. But you know something? When I live a life of gratitude, I actually see that everything has been given to me as a gift. Like, I haven't earned it. I don't deserve it. It's just a gift. Number three, I've learned that gratitude lifts the weight of heaviness off my life. I don't know about you, but sometimes I can get a little downhearted. Sometimes I can feel a bit low. Sometimes it feels like there's a cloud over my life. I don't know about you, but sometimes that's what life is like. But you know something I've discovered? That the enemy of anxiety is often thanksgiving. Philippians chapter 4, it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, 
present your request to God and the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. I found that when I give thanks, it breaks something off my life and I experience a freedom from those things that hold me. Number four, I found that gratitude prevents me falling into a comparison trap because I give thanks for the things that I've been given rather than looking to somebody else and trying to see what they've been given. We live in a pretty dangerous world because of digital stuff that means that you can compare yourself with a person down the road as well as comparing yourself to the person who lives in Florida in a mansion. And you can look at them and think, I don't have it. I haven't got enough. But when I give thanks... It breaks that comparison off my life. And I can just say to God, God, I give you thanks for all that you've given to me. And then fifthly and finally, gratitude, as I've said right at the start, is the door code into God's presence. I don't know about you, but I want to be a man of his presence. I don't know about you, but I want to be someone who knows God intimately. I don't know about you, but I want to be a non-anxious presence when I walk into a room. And I can only be a non-anxious presence when I walk into a room if God is walking alongside me, if I know his presence. And gratitude, therefore, enables me to know his presence at a deeper level because I enter his gates with thanksgiving. And this has been my best way today to communicate to you the importance of gratitude and thanksgiving. Because our text describes two people, one who thinks he's doing God a favor and one who cannot believe how blessed she is. One who picks fault and one who's overwhelmed with gratitude. And to the one who's overwhelmed with gratitude, Jesus says, your faith has saved you Go in peace. I wonder if there are people in this room today who need to stop coming to Jesus out of routine, out of ritual, out of religious practice, but just do it out of gratitude. I think there would be a few of us in the room today who just need to be amazed at grace all over again. Amen?